Grace and peace be multiplied to you as you continue to focus on the empty tomb and the message that God has there decreed. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, you don't hear much about reality checks anymore, do you? I don't. I used to hear that phrase all the time. I no longer do. Maybe there's a cool new term of which I am yet unaware the, the modern way to say reality check. I hope so, because we need them. We always need them. Now, perhaps more than ever, our society has devolved into something of a surreal la-la land of make-believe, where life is supposed to sort of be a perpetual story hour, where truth and reality are whatever you want them to be. All evidence to the contrary, notwithstanding. Now, it's always been this way with immature. And that's young and old. Immature in their thoughts. That's when and where and why those reality checks came in and were so invaluable. Billy decided that he didn't need his parents anymore. He had, after all, turned 12, and he was able to take care of himself. Thank you very much. So he decided he'd had enough, and he was just going to leave. So he packed up all of his belongings, which actually were stuff that his parents had bought for him, And he took with him also his participation trophies, testament to his prowess, and he left. That lasted about till sundown. And he came to realize that life wasn't what he necessarily thought it was. It it, it was cold, and it was dark. And it could be cruel, and it was very unaccommodating out there. Food didn't just appear on the table in the real world. Nor did people tend to understand, recognize, and appreciate just how very special he was. So he decided to forgive his parents and give them another chance. Oh, the magic of the reality check. We need that. My fear is that we don't hear much about it at all anymore because our society has decided and is struggling mightily to achieve this idea that reality isn't real anymore. That we can manipulate it. That we can make it what we want it to be. In fact, reality to them, the old way, is not only unnecessary, it can be counterproductive, and it's even cruel. How can dreamers dream if, if we continue to throw that cold, wet blanket of reality on them? How can, they, how can they gain these advanced degrees that will benefit no one on planet Earth if they have to pay for them? It's just not fair. How can they be multi-million dollar superstar athletes if some people require that they have talent and work hard? Reality checks used to fix that sort of silliness. 
but our society seems to have misplaced them. Thankfully, God did not. In fact, God works them into our lives often on a daily basis, snapping us back to reality and truth. And in large part, he does so because he knows we need it. And Christians love him for it. It's what we want him to do for us, in large part because it sounds silly, but there is nothing more real, there is no greater reality than reality itself. So this morning we're going to examine several of those reality checks that our God introduces into our lives. The text on which we'll base our study is found in Paul's first recorded letter to the church at Corinth, the 10th chapter, beginning with the 12th verse. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. This is the word of God. Trusting the author of these words and trusting that he will continue to bless us through their study, so we pray. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. One of the most exciting aspects of the Christian faith is the realization that we are led by an unseen God, that our God holds us in his hand and guides and protects us throughout our lives. In the 31st Psalm, David wrote these simple, powerful words, my times are in your hands. That's, that's a tremendous comfort, especially whenever God decides that an individual's time of grace on earth has come to an end. We can enjoy and comfort, know that God, who held this person in his hand, determined to call that person home now. His times were in God's hands. But it's a comfort, and it's intended to be such, every day, every moment of every life. We don't want to rob ourselves of this going through life. It isn't just that our times are in God's hands in the sense that, well, when he calls us home or calls an end to our time of grace, then, okay. It's every single day. God holds us in his hand. He guides and directs the things of this life with his children in mind. It's, it's what a joy, what a comfort to know that 
He knows us intimately, better than we know ourselves. We're told, in fact, that he knows the number of the hairs on our head. An easier thing for some than for others. Yet how many of you know how many hairs are on your head? And yet God does. So he knows us intimately. He is connected to us. He lives within us. Now the godless hear such things and they're terrified by it. It, it terrifies them to hear that God sees through their facade all the silliness under which they try to hide. Christians, on the other hand, hear this as the very best possible news. How thrilling to be able simply to enjoy the ride that is life under God's protection. Life according to how He directs. Trusting our God, by the way, not only is supposed to remove fear and uncertainty, it also allows us to live and actually appreciate the moment, like this moment. This is both good and necessary because as you get older, so the people that have gotten older tell me, as you get older, you, you begin to recognize that many of the most important things that happen in your life happen without your recognition. And, and suddenly they're gone. And you never really focused on them at the time. They tend to come and go without our recognizing their importance. We miss the here and now, usually because we're too focused on what's to come, too distracted by other things to actually appreciate the moment. The good old days never seem to be lived, only remembered. God knew this about us, which is why he often sends his special reality checks to make us stop and refocus and live in the moment to appreciate his blessings, the reality of what is both good and bad. One of those divine reality checks is found in the first verse of our text for this morning. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Christians are only strong in the Lord. No matter what we might think at times, we do not have strength in and of ourselves. It's it's a facade, it's a, it's a mist, it's a vapor, it's a falsehood. And the only reason we come to think that in the first place is because our God continues to carry us, to hold us, to grant us His strength, His guidance, His protection. And yet, like children, we imagine that we're doing this all on our own. The idea that we can somehow coast into eternal life, into heaven, without concern, based on our own strength, our own spiritual reserves. It's, it's something akin to an airline pilot 
deciding that he's flying high enough and fast enough that he can now shut off the engines. As it is an immutable reality that airplanes do not float, so it is also an immutable, unchangeable reality that Christians cannot coast. We cannot simply decide that based on our own strength and what we've accumulated to date, we can make it into heaven. So how foolish is it to not tend to that one thing that is necessary in this life, faith in Jesus Christ. How silly to abandon the means by which God continues to strengthen, by which God continues to make us grow, which is, of course, His Word. In our text, we're assured that our loving God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He provides that escape, that strength, in his word. So the first reality check offered to us by our God this morning, faith, saving faith, can be lost. And the most corrosive enemy of faith is sin. Now, this whole topic of sin confuses even many Christians. We need to spend little time on the world's idea of sin. I'm sure you know what it is now. The world's idea of sin is, and the remedy for it, is to deny its very existence. If you just pretend sin isn't sin, then you don't have a problem. Sin is, so they have determined, a construct of man. That it's, it, it's something that man has created. Just a concept. As they also believe man created God and therefore religion. And these things are the problem. And if we would just clear that away, then we wouldn't have any problem. This is their solution to their consciences that trouble them day and night. If they can just scream loudly enough that what I'm doing is right, then all problems will be solved. And they congratulate themselves on their elevated wisdom and their modern thought, which is actually as old as Satan himself. Knowing as he does all things, God provided a special daily reality check for us in the prayer that he himself gave us. In the fifth petition of that prayer, we pray, and forgive us our trespasses. And we know that that's a daily prayer, which means it's a daily reality check. In this, our Savior reminds us first of the reality of sin. Just something that simple, but he does it on a daily basis. It would be nonsensical for Jesus to teach us to repent of that which didn't exist. Sin is real, and his danger is real. And yet here's where the confusion often comes in for Christians. 
this whole topic of sin and forgiveness. How do we reconcile, forgive us our trespasses with what we celebrated on Good Friday, the cross, and Jesus' words, it is finished. Is it finished? Did, did Jesus make full and complete, complete payment for every sin, also for my sin, so that full and complete forgiveness is mine through faith alone? Or is there something I have to do? And that's where the confusion comes. Do my sins accumulate? Jesus won payment, but they're not removed from my account on God's divine ledger until I do something, until I confess them until I carry out something necessary for that sin to be removed finally from my account. So, does my sin accumulate? And if it does, what must I do? Because I know full well that even one sin would bar the door to heaven. Nothing unholy can enter God's heaven. And you can see the, the confusion The reality is, our Savior meant exactly what he said on the cross. It is finished. The sum total of the guilt, the punishment for sin, was paid in full by Jesus Christ. Sin is real, but just as real is the payment that Jesus earned for that sin. The Lord has placed on him the iniquity of us all. So then, if it was, as we said, forgiveness earned in full by Jesus, then how do we explain how some are Christians, others are not? Listen to these beautiful words from Paul. And to the one who does not work, fit into that box, work, everything that man would have to do. So in other words, to the one who does not work, that is, does not do anything to help himself along this way of sinlessness, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, as is declares to be innocent, the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Righteous is the opposite of sinful. The two are mutually exclusive. If you are righteous, you have no sin. If you have sin, you are not righteous. So this passage says, his faith is counted as righteous, as righteousness. God declares us to be not guilty of sin, righteous, through faith alone in the sacrifice of his Son. But then why did Jesus teach us to pray, forgive us our trespasses, if we are counted righteous, that is sinless, through faith alone in him? By way of answer, let me ask you, how or what do you feel when you pray this prayer? When you pray, forgive us our trespasses. What, in other words, does this petition force you to do? What is the reality check here? It's two things, isn't it? First, 
It focuses you back on the reality of sin, my sin. But then it forces you to the cross. It forces you back inexorably to Jesus Christ as the sin payment. Every day we need that. We sin every day, but every day we're supposed to be reminded of how that sin too, the things that trouble you day by day, that sin too was paid for 2,000 years ago by Christ on his cross. That sin too is covered by it is finished. It's gone. But see, we forget, don't you? We forget. We tend to overlook sin. We tend to kid ourselves that well, we, we need a Savior, but not as much as others. We need a Savior every bit as much. So Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, pushed us back to the reality every day of sin. But then he didn't leave us there. He also forces us back to him as that which paid in full for our sin debt. Always, only to Jesus. We have this, this terrible flaw in that we so easily forget we so easily pretend we forget what we're actually like and then we pretend that well, we're, we're doing pretty good on our own now we don't need Jesus as much we're like those little children that that decide they're gonna run away from home and Jesus gives us this reality check you are nothing on your own. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. Satan knows that he can never successfully attack that declaration from the cross of sins forgiven, that it is finished. It's immovable. It's immutable, having been declared by God. He's powerless against that, that hill on which the cross stood. So he has two options. He can get you to deny that it ever happened, or he can get you to imagine that you have to add something to what Christ did, and therefore also, in that way, reject Jesus and his sin payment. In fact, the two are connected because to get you to reject Jesus, his best option is to get you to deny sin, your sin, and therefore no need of a Savior from that sin. What he absolutely cannot tolerate is Christians fleeing for refuge to God's infinite mercy in Christ Jesus. And yet that's exactly what our God accomplishes for us, isn't it? In that fifth petition. Forgive us our trespasses, Lord Jesus. It forces us to stop, to consider the reality of my sin, and then drives us back to Jesus. God also knows something else about us that we're more comfortable with the tangible. We're more comfortable with what we can see and touch, our, our senses can actually interact with. He knows that about us. So he determined in his infinite mercy, love, wisdom, 
to connect two things to earthly elements. And we're privileged to, to take part in both of them this morning. He connected baptism, the water to baptism, and bread and wine to his Lord's Supper. Both are reality checks, aren't they? When you stop to think about it, baptism is God's reality check that sin is inherent in every human being. We're born with it. We're conceived in it. Children, as they're born from their mothers, beautiful human beings are nonetheless sinful and need that washing of regeneration in connection with baptism. The Lord's Supper, He knows that, yes, we hear sin forgiven, but God says, I'm going to give you my very body and blood. Another reality check, because when you receive that bread and the wine, you are receiving in that heavenly, miraculous way His true body and blood. And that reality check is this was the payment necessary. This is what Holy Communion is supposed to do. I receive now, by God's own word, Christ's very body and blood, by which the Savior of the human race paid my sin debt 2,000 years ago. And so we ask again, but aren't my sins already forgiven? Don't I have full and complete fame? Forgiveness through faith in Jesus? Again, ask yourself, what does this do for you when you come to the Lord's Supper? It forces me to acknowledge my sin, the reality check that I am weak and sinful and am nothing apart from Jesus Christ. But then it drives me back to Jesus. This do, he said, in remembrance of me, always, only, Jesus, back to him. We're brought to spiritual life in the waters of baptism, and he knows that as we go through life, we're going to be weak, we're going to be needy. We need him always. And so he comforts, strengthens us, individually, personally, tangibly, in his supper. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This passage makes absolutely no sense if you deny the real presence in Holy Communion. How can we participate with that which is not present? Again, that reality check that God gives us. My very body and blood. You are participating with that here. It's so many things that accomplishes for us. It's intended to accomplish for us. The reality of our sin. The reality of our forgiveness. The reality that being joined in this special way, participating in the very body and blood of Christ, what does that do for me going forward? I don't want to take this temple of the Holy Spirit and dirty it again. I want to do what my God wants me to do, the one who died and paid my sin debt. What true, real comfort and peace is here offered. My sin does not accumulate. Forgiveness is mine through faith alone in the one who already paid for every one of those sins. Every single sin. Is your heart troubled by something? A sin in the past? 
that sin too. Paid in full, finished, gone, forgotten. That's what Jesus told us to remember every time we commune, that he already paid for that sin. Rage against this reality, though the devil most certainly will, is powerless to change it. Our sin debt has been paid. Forgiveness is ours. Through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Amen.